1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf, and I'm here in New York City. In our studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., we have the whole gang. We have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. We have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And, fresh in from sunny California, we have Corey Shockey of Stanford University. Hi, guys. Hey, Dave. Hi. Good to be with you. Gee, that was so enthusiastic and did Hi, even David. Say anything. <laughs> yeah. I was, yeah, sure. yeah, I was we'll just, wait just wait waiting
2: for Rosa. a chance to
1: have an
0: individual hello with you. In yeah, case you're this. wondering, who holds grudges amongst us for?
1: Wow, wow. Ooh. People, I didn't even know what that's in reference to. All right, so look, so, let me let me turn the subject to something a little bit more uh, serious. We're taping this on Monday, which is September 11th. Uh, this morning, I watched president of the United States, come out of the White House and have a moment of silence standing next to his wife. Then he went to the Pentagon where he spoke of combating the evil that targets us. Uh, And I was struck by the fact that 16 years after September 11th, uh, this has morphed into one of the kind of high holy days of the American political year. Uh, And that it has also morphed from being uh, uh, a a remembrance of those who died, at least for some people, into being a kind of chance to renew a call to arms against those out there who threaten us. Um, And it reminds us that September 11th did indeed change the United States in a fundamental way. Uh, and I think may have led us to Donald Trump, uh, because some people sought to capitalize on the underlying hatred and divisions and feed the fear, and that led to a president who does just that on a daily basis. And so I thought to begin this discussion, I, I might pick your since Ed, since you're a guest. Let's start with you. On, on, on how you reflect on this and this moment with this president presiding over it. Well, I, I would
3: agree with much of the premise of your question. I mean, certainly Trump uh, is hard to imagine without the kind of polarization and, um, you know, identity politics that inevitably came out of nine eleven. But I think there's also a sort of separate strand there, which is, the Iraq War, which was um, you know the most concrete and i think disastrous product of of the west 's reaction to nine um, eleven uh, trump 's alleged opposition to it, which, of course, wasn't apparent at the time, but that he trumpeted uh, <laughs> during the Republican primaries um, last year and the year before, Trump's opposition to it um, brought him huge popularity and credibility with um, uh, disaffected Republicans. And I was there covering, for example, the South Carolina primary, where he uh, roundly defeated Jeb Bush. Um, by talking about Bush's war, and by talking um, in the same way you might imagine, you know, liberals talking about and the same kind of thing that Obama did to Hillary Clinton, although in a very different tone, in two thousand and eight over the Iraq war. So Trump is a, certainly a product of the uh, of the sort of social forces that that um, I think were unleashed by nine eleven, but he's also a product of ersatz opposition to the Disastrous war that that resulted from it,
1: Corey.
0: I agree with Ed that not only do you not get President Trump, you also don't get President Obama without the Iraq War, and you don't get the Iraq War without September 11th. Uh, when I went into the Bush administration. Uh, Uh, I started talking to the Bush administration about going to the NSC after September 11th and then started in 2002. And it was striking for me how fearful all of the senior people in the administration were, right? Like every day, as Condi Rice has said, every day felt like September 10th to them. After that, and I think you don't get the Iraq War without September 11th. But even if another couple years had passed before Saddam Hussein was uh, was fooling around with the U.N. weapons inspectors, I don't think you would have gotten the Iraq War. People were really scared and felt quite strongly the burden of having failed to protect Americans on September 11th. And so I think it does set in motion a whole train of events that on the political side do bring us to where we are. But I also wouldn't underestimate how much on the economic side, uh, how much... You know, we're midstream in a revolution in technological change. And because our politics are frightened, it is reinforcing um, suboptimal reactions to the rate of change that we're experiencing in
2: the economy. Rosa? Yeah, I think it's I think it's complicated. Um, I think Corey's right um, that the economy plays a hu- huge role here too, because as Ed suggests, the, you know, 9-11... It sort of cuts both ways in terms of producing Trump, right? On the one hand, I I, I do think that 9-11 was a huge setback for any image of uh, a more unified United States, which is ironic, right? Because obviously, it was a great opportunity to come together, heal divisions, et cetera. But the the, the rhetoric and the sort of securitization of immigration, things like that that came out of 9-11... Um, I think we still see that echoing in in terms of today's divided divisiveness over issues such as immigration and issues of of who belongs, who's a real American, who counts. Um, but on the other hand, as, as Ed suggests, I think that the Iraq war, which was which was initially viewed by the George W. Bush administration as an effort to carry through the response to the 9-11 attacks ended up being incredibly divisive for Republicans as well and ended up peeling lots of Republicans away from the mainstream of the Republican Party you know that there is a place where where the far left and the far right have met uh, on uh, anxieties about interventionism, anxieties about about uh, not having enough left to take care of us at home and that in turn is where as Corey suggests it all intersects with the with the economic anxieties and you know Trump, Trump represents this fantasy and and it is absolutely fantasy that we can just go back to the sort of good old days of you know American manufacturing giants and and so forth and you know that I do think partly I think I think that the democrats bear as much responsibility as the republicans for getting us to a place where a comp- you know, both the Republicans and the Democrats really lost interest in trying to think about the downside impact of globalization on American workers and in trying to cushion that and in trying to explain it and, you know, and in trying to do anything about it. And both parties, Democrats and Republicans, are now paying the price in a lot of very angry voters who feel betrayed and who feel un- uncared about. And and all those things come together to, to create Trump. So I don't know if it's, yeah. you know, any one of them.
0: Can I add one more point on the economics of it, which was that after September 11th um, – uh, the Bush White House was so fearful that the second shoe to fall was going to be the economic consequences of it, and that drives the President towards two economic choices: one is to encourage people to behave normally and to ask nothing in the way of national unity and national sacrifice and The second is not to um, not to raise taxes in this new security environment all of those things also build up a whole lot of pressure on the economic side and a whole lot of consequences as because they were so fearful about the economic consequences of September 11th. They made a decision – they made a series of decisions to ask for nothing um, is, as a consequence and I think that too casts a long shadow.
1: You know, Ed, uh, uh, Rosa made an interesting point about globalization more broadly. And, you know, in the United States – Since the beginning of the United States, there has been this dichotomy of a nation that has wanted to remain isolated, uh, a nation that in its very first law about immigration only opened immigration to uh, whites, uh, a nation that has regularly sought to uh, keep immigration focused on Europeans, um, a nation that has periodically fallen into the um, habit of of, of isolationism uh, and fearing the world. And that this is beneath the surface all the time. You know, we say, well, maybe 9-11 triggered it. But, you know, nine, uh, eight years earlier, nine years earlier, Ross Perot was talking about globalization in ways that were unnerving to Americans. Uh, and of course, that goes far back into history. It seems like the United States is always at a tipping point and the, 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 the thing that leaders need to be careful about is keeping us from going too far in one direction because it's so damaging when we seek to uh, turn our back on the world or alienate them. Um, and uh, while you might be have been able to immigrate because of your background,
2: uh, I w- personal charm, personal
3: char- contribution <laughs>
0: to the American economy, <laughs> exceptional,
3: <laughs> exceptional, <laughs> exceptional, extraordinary ability visa, uh, which yeah. was a complete, <laughs> a complete fake visa. But I'm very happy to have benefited from it.
1: Uh, <laughs> it was, but it but who you want, get to write references? What you think for of you, this but. dichotomy within within the United States.
3: Um, so I, I was at a conference, um, uh, uh, quite a quite an interesting conference at. Um, in, uh, on this estate in Long Island, organized by Ditchley, the British, um, Ditchley Park, the British group, and Brookings. It's a sort of annual thing, at, um, an estate there. And um, there was a former director, recent former director of the CIA there. And one of the things we were debating this weekend was um, um, the response to Islamist radicalism and terrorism. Um, and it was really, really striking. And this former CIA director m- made this observation how the debates we were having, um, you know, about whether this was a transcendent challenge, a civilizational call to arms, or whether this was a police problem. Most, I think, people being somewhere in between those two points um, was the same debate that we were having shortly after 9-11 and indeed to some degree before 9-11. And yet over that time, you know, it's gone from being a problem where we've got to stop them coming here. To, we've got to stop our people going there and now we've just got to stop them somehow from within their own homes. Um, and it, you know, it, is, it is morphed and metastasized in different ways. I'd still argue more towards the police problem. Um, uh, being the best response, because I, I and I th- hope I would have argued. I don't recollect in, after nine eleven that the less we change, the stronger we will be in in, in the face of these threats, because their aim is ultimately to change us,
1: well, but, both for tactical to...
3: and and um, theological reasons. Sorry, to and, pick
1: up to pick up on that, um, Corey, in the days after. 9-11, just, just under a week after 9-11, George W. Bush made a speech at a mosque. And I, and I don't typically do this, but I just want to read a little bit of the speech. He said, Islam is peace, peace. These terrorists don't represent peace. They represent evil and war. When we think of Islam, we think of a faith that brings comfort to a billion people around the world. Billions of people find comfort I'm and solace. Trying and peace. to
2: imagine Donald Trump saying these things. Well, right. And it goes on and yeah.
1: on. And it says Americans count millions of Muslims among our citizens. And Muslims make an incredible, valuable contribution to our country. And it goes on beyond that. And it says women who cover their heads in this country must feel comfortable going outside their homes. Moms who wear cover must not be intimidated in America. That's not the America I know. And then he just finishes this section and he says, that should not and that will not stand in America. Those who feel like they can intimidate our fellow citizens to take out their anger don't represent the best of America. They represent the worst of humankind and they should be ashamed of that kind of behavior. And now, precisely the kind of person he describes as President of the United States. George W. Bush got it right six days after 9-11. How did we get here from there?
0: Uh, So two things. First, I agree with you that uh, President Bush's response to it was both uh, beautiful and strategically savvy as the best way to minimize the risks that we are facing. Second thing is I agree with you that President Trump is needlessly antagonizing our fellow citizens uh, in a way that that increases rather than, increase, than decreases the threat to us. Moreover, I believe it's fundamentally un-American to do what the president is doing. And it aggravates potential frictions in our body politic rather than ameliorating them. Uh, how do we get from one to another? I think a couple of ways. One is uh, I'm sorry one more uh, one more uh, general point, which is that I think the views that President Bush expressed after September eleventh are overwhelmingly the views of the American public. Um, I think the vast majority of Americans agree with that uh, approach, and one of one of the things President Trump has done is create um uh, previously inhospitable environments to translate those into places where people who hold the views that President Trump does feel safe and emboldened in public to express them. And that's not just a danger to Muslims in our midst. That's a danger to us all. Uh, How do we get from here to there? I think one... Uh, way and and I'm looking intently at Rosa as I say this because it connects to her magnificent book is that being perennially at war uh, across these last 17 years does actually have long term effects on the body politic uh, the second thing is that I, I think as Ed mentioned our original Uh, assessment of the problem was that it's people over there wanting to harm us here. The second iteration of the problem was it's people here going over there and we're afraid they'll come back. And the third and, in my judgment, most dangerous iteration of this problem is radicalization of Americans. And that does shift both the frame of reference on the problem and the best solutions to it uh, in ways that our our policy on countering terrorism has not caught up to. Over to you, Rosa.
2: No, I, th- I think that that's right, and and I actually think that you know, ironically, perhaps, um, but probably not surprisingly to to any of you, that the. The group of disaffected, mostly males who are attracted to extremist Islamist ideology, violent, violent Islamist ideology, uh, has a tremendous amount in common with the group of mostly males in this country who are attracted to xenophobic philosophies uh, and don't like immigrants and don't like gay people and don't like Muslims and so on. I mean, you know, I I, I think that when you have groups of people that feel powerless and marginalized and ignored Um, that – and then you have sort of available ideologies out there for them to grab onto that give them an alternative place to – locus for blame, you know, so you don't have to think, oh, yeah, you know, gee, you must have screwed up. That's why you're unemployed. You know, that's why you're on disability. That's why you're addicted to opiates, whatever it may be. But instead say, "Uh uh-uh, it was not your fault. Um, And and, and obviously, needless to say, there's just something in between, right? You could have a complicated structural explanation about the economy and the educational system and so on, but that's hard, right? That's hard. It's complicated. It's hard. It's not that satisfying. Whereas if you can say it's the immigrants' fault, it's the Muslims' fault, it's the gays' fault, or, you know, it's the infidels' fault for that matter. You know, those are a lot easier for—it's a form of laziness, but it's it's a kind of emotional and psychological laziness that that is— all of us tend to fall prey to, you know. So I, I do think that we have we have a group of people in this country uh, who who are not wrong to think, boy, I'm kind of screwed. You know, I and people who look like me and who live in places like the places where I live have kind of gotten screwed. And I don't understand it, and it's scary and it's upsetting, and and, and I and I feel a sense of powerlessness and anger. Uh, and then you've got a group of people. Uh, not primarily in other countries, but to some extent here, who feel like everybody is down on me, everybody is mean to me because I'm a Muslim, you know, or or everybody's just mean to me, and it must be because I'm a Muslim, uh, and and you know that that people look around for a nice totalistic explanation, uh, and they find them, you know, and and I think the the, the challenge for us is is the same long term challenge that we've always had that which is that. Ultimately, you know, there's the – it's an overused phrase. You have to get at the root causes of terrorism. We, you know, we all say that and it's, it's you know, easier said than done. But, but as long as there are populations that feel, that feel correctly such a high degree of powerlessness and marginalization, they will always be vulnerable to sort of whatever most convenient ideology that's being dangled out in front of them, you know, to grab onto it and become absolutist about it. I, there was another point I was going to make, but I've forgotten what it was, so I'll stop right there.
3: I'm sure Again. it was a very good one. <laughs> it was a really good yeah, point. It no, one. It, it was the best one of all. It was absolutely
2: the strongest point possible. <laughs> Shit. I
1: I'm sure we'll get to it in some future episode. oh wait, and- I know what it was <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, this doesn't go to this directly right but but the other thing we we know we act like we know nothing about terrorism and how terrorist movements rise and fall, but in fact, there is a substantial academic literature out there uh, and one of the things that we do know looking at at sort of cross-cultural studies of terrorist organizations over over the last hundred plus years is that most of them do burn themselves out, you know, and they burn themselves out not because of anything that the the attacked party does or doesn't do directly, but they burn themselves out because they lack or lose support from the communities that they depend on to provide them with recruits, to provide them with funding, to provide them with food, to shelter them from the authorities and so forth. Uh, and the ones that managed to sustain themselves over many, many decades are ones that in fact are doing something that the communities that they depend on perceive as a service. Um, That I think there's no particular reason to think that that won't be just as true of today's extremist Islamist terror groups as it has been of many other terrorist groups around the world in the past. I I do think that our counterterrorism strategies tend to forget that fairly basic insight. Uh, you know, which is that if you can focus on addressing the concerns of the communities that terrorist groups depend on them and peel them away, that that in the long run is the best bet for ensuring a shorter life for the terrorist movement.
1: So, Ed, you know, as I listen to all of this, I think, wow, it's 2017. It's 16 years later. The United States is still focused on this as a principal issue. It's still focused on terrorists as a principal threat um, we've waged wars. We've spent um, uh, trillions of dollars in, in, in waging those wars. Uh, we've killed countless number ones and number twos in Al Qaeda. We've, uh, you know, devoted ourselves, essentially, as the principal work of the greatest, most powerful nation in, in the history of the world for almost two decades to solving a problem that was essentially posed um, by Osama bin Laden you know 16 years ago. That sounds to me like a giant victory for Osama bin Laden. And, and in fact, it, it sounds to me like 9/11 was one of the most successful um, acts of sort of resetting the geopolitical scene. Uh, in in modern history
3: i would agree i would sadly have to uh, uh, agree with that notwithstanding uh, i think the very salient and rather optimistic point that rosa just made you know that these things do burn themselves out um it wasn't just you know an extraordinary um tectonic shifting act um by al-qaeda and Osama bin laden it was also it it if elicited responses from the United States and the rest of the West, or most of the rest of the West, that um, I think amounted to the first of several geopolitical windfalls to fall into China's lap um, this century. Uh, um, uh, w- the most recent being, of course, the election of Donald Trump and the tarnishing of the whole sort of model of, the, of democracy. Um, but it's not just, you know, the West. It's not just... America, France, um, and Britain and others that have overreacted and I think help nourish some of these radicalized, um, these death cults. It's look at what's happening to the Rohingya people in in, in uh, the other side of the world, in, in, in Burma, um, you know, being expelled, being ethnically cleansed, being butchered by the M- M- Myanmar army. And many of them, hundreds of thousands going into India as refugees from terror, really, Um, and finding not the India of old, not the India of Nehru, not the India of Gandhi, but the India of Narendra Modi, who is now, because they are Muslim, um, refusing to criticize Myanmar and organizing the deportation of these refugees. What better petri dish could you imagine than the combination of Myanmar and Modi um, treating a people, and of course a Muslim people, like this, that what better petri dish for radicalization and God forbid, a new lease of terrorism in that region. So you know, I, I fear that sort of group, the the United States, or, or rather the Trump sort of identitarians, have no monopoly on this kind of um, on this kind of highly counterproductive but self politically self-aggrandizing behavior. Tribalism is, for many complex reasons. Uh, a nationalist tribalism is on the rise everywhere, uh, right?
1: And, I- and, and, and and American choices in the course of the past two decades have uh, influenced that. And I have to say, Ed, you you know, just you and I are regularly on the same wavelength. And so you couldn't possibly know that the column I wrote for the Washington Post, which will come out the same day as this podcast, talks about nine eleven and the Rohingya. Oh, interesting. And, and it talks about the silence of donald trump on the rohingya he has not brought it up although he may tomorrow after his meeting with the malaysian prime minister but but his secretary of state has not gotten involved he has essentially been silent much as he has been silent by the way of attacks in the united states on muslims and ang
3: sang Su chi has been silent it,
1: well exactly and that's the other point is Which that here is really no gloria who has remained silent she for her own? Worse than
2: time. remaining silent, she has she has she hasn't simply said no comment, not sure, don't know. She said it's not happening. These are lies.
1: Yeah. Well, that's right. And and three hundred thousand Rohingya have left the country in the past month alone. Several thousand of them have been killed. Satellite imagery shows the systematic burning of these houses. She is on the wrong side of this. The United States is on the wrong side of this. But, you know, you have also in this Rohingya thing, you know, something that's a little starker. Not only are are Muslims, in this case, the targets, but Buddhists, who who we think of as...
2: I know. We thought they were so warm and cuddly. We thought they just did yoga.
1: Well, exactly. How How wrong we were. They are the ones behind all of this. Um, And it's kind of... And to me, it was it's just very striking that, you know, in part because we didn't em- embrace the ideas that even George Bush offered six days after this thing, and instead went the path of tribalism, we are contributing to a global atmosphere of tribalism that has consequences that are extremely dire on, on, on every side of every divide, Hey, Corey?
0: Uh, I differ a little, David. It seems to me less clear that the United States is, for example, responsible for Narendra Modi's election uh, and his reaction to the Rohingya. Terrible as that situation is and terrible as Narendra Modi's reaction to it has been and shameful as Aung San Su Ke's reaction has been to it. i th- I think you may be giving us more credit than we deserve for shaping other people's attitudes when I think there is uh, a widespread, if not universal failure on these counts.
3: There are Trumpian, if I could just make I, I, I just just by coincidence, well, not coincidence, we're talking about a, a current issue, but I, I tweeted today a piece by a colleague in India um, my very talented colleague colleague Amy Kasmin, and she'd written, about the Rohingya, good piece, very vivid piece, and um, the uh, and uh, there was an implicit criticism of Modi in uh, in my tweet and in the piece I was tweeting, and it, the response from the Hindutva uh, trolls, Twitter trolls. Um, uh, you know, matched anything you're seeing from the alt right in, in this country, the visceral nastiness, the um, uh, and use of terms like prostitutes. You're all prostitutes. and you're, I mean, <laughs> That's a the good language, one. Yes, I hadn't heard that
2: before. <laughs> Ed, it you're it prostitute. <laughs> I, I, yeah,
3: I feel honored actually. Yes, but, um, uh, I've been practicing prostitution. Right. Um,
2: uh, the,
3: uh, but it, it, it's, it, it's uncanny, even though, as Corey says, there are very different um, you know roots and particularities to each of these tribal political movements and including I- Narendra Modi who is homegrown um, just how similar they are you know in their use of technology and um, and in their sort of Gresham's law of just the the bad driving out the good. Uh, voices of reason just get drowned. And, of course, I'm the voice of reason in this particular example. Um, but, we'll, we'll, but I'm sitting with two wonderful voices of well, reason. Well, if if uh, I
2: can make a, a wild overgeneralization, um, you know, I suppose you could say that that cosmopolitanism is a a luxury – uh of good economic times and tribalism is a disease of bad economic times and insecurity that, that when when people in general, whether they're in India or in Appalachia uh, or in Pakistan or wherever, uh, you know when, When it feels like there's a rising tide that lifts all boats, people feel that they can afford to be generous and they can afford to be imaginative and they can afford to say these these tribal differences aren't important uh, because we're all going to get higher education. We're all going to get fancy jobs. We're all going to have new iPhones and everything is fine. And then when things get scary – and I think that they are scary around the globe – uh, and with good reason. You know, they're not just scary for sort of artificial whipped up reasons, whipped up by demagog- demagoguery. They're scary because the global economy is pretty darn scary uh, at the moment. Um, and I think that we're, we're all collectively facing problems that we don't know how to solve. Uh, you know, that people fall back on – you know, you fall back on your own circle. You fall back on your family. You fall back on your group. You fall back on your nation. And I think obviously that there are, you know, that, that, that is a, it's a wild overgeneralization. There are, there are societies and not to mention, of course, many, many individuals for whom that is not the case. But, but in terms of just the, the global pattern is a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety driving a lot of tribalism.
3: I would agree, I would agree with that um uh, but I think that you know India what's very disturbing about India is that everybody thinks their children are going to be better off and and they're probably right and and there is a rising middle class not a shrinking one and there are rising and pretty fast growth rates and so I think there's something additional yeah, to these anxieties yeah. here that that it's—I mean—technology is something we have in common, and I think that's a—that's fa- the common. Yeah,
2: factor. well, and and you know, some part of my career uh, earlier in my career was spent, uh, you know, analyzing genocides, right, and analyzing uh, societies that, which have seen mass, widespread atrocities. And and one of the—it's no wonder, no
1: wonder
3: turned <laughs> right. out to be that, such. A that's why, why I'm so cheerful. <laughs> <in>
2: sunshine, <yes. laughs> um, you, you've said
3: the most optimistic thing today. <laughs> I, I, I'm working. <laughs>
2: I'm working on it. Um, but, but th- that the uh, you know sort of contra, contra Tolstoy, all geno- you know all unhappy genocidal societies are unhappy and genocidal in exactly the same way. That that, that whether you want to look at Cambodia or you want to look at Rwanda or you want to look at Nazi Germany, you know, or the Balkans, that the the steps involved in whipping up uh, societies into a genocidal cannibalistic frenzy. Look pretty much the same across multiple multiple cultures, and they they very much involve technology as an enabler and a facilitator. You know, so so perhaps perhaps this is just to say that that there is a playbook for being a you know populist nationalist uh, creep, um, and apparently they give that playbook out. There's some some kind of secret convention that they have and they give out this playbook. um, And it works. It it works because it works. And the really depressing thing that that always struck me was that it turns out it's not all that hard to whip people up into a genocidal frenzy. It's a whole lot harder to whip them back down again. Because in fact, uh, we
0: have uh, always assumed that democratic societies are peaceful societies and it... Uh, there is a fair amount of data on the other side of the line, Serbia in the 1990s, for example, where you have representative government that is profoundly dangerous to people around them.
1: Well, I mean, the United States in the 19th century was a genocidal society and was a democracy. And Germany exercised democracy and ended up being a genocidal society and so forth. I mean, you know, those are oversimplifications uh and indeed i think
2: that is our stock uh, and trade we We,
1: well let me let me add to that then by saying that i also think it's an oversimplification to suggest that it's just when people are down on their luck that that they become vulnerable to this the united states is the richest most prosperous nation on earth and it's going through a spell of it that's particularly bad people within the united states who are struggling or fearful Uh, may be susceptible to this but, but I think that's the point that within every society there are people that are susceptible and that actually this requires a leadership decision and that if you look in history you have leaders who take advantage of these divisions in order to advance themselves you have leaders who are silent on these who are pretty much similar to the first group and then you have rare groups of leaders who say look the divisions are harming us and we have to fight actively against them And absent the latter group, we end up with this throughout history. Corey, you're very sensitive to this, and I would like you to now give an example from the 13th century. But
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let's see. The Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre.
3: That is the 16th century. Dug
0: on it! Wow. <laughs> as, as a descendant
3: right. of a Huguenot,
0: and they fled. They went. To, they went to England.
3: I know that date: 1588 that oh, <laughs> might be 87. of wow, right.
0: the St.
1: Bartholomew's of, Day Massacre, every week we come back to that. Lest
3: oh. we forget.
0: One of the reasons, though, that the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre matters so much is that it's in an ethnically cohesive society riven by religious intolerance which proves your point david although i was off by two centuries that every society has these frictions in them and if catherine de medici had not taken after france would have been a lot more cohesive
1: fully agree well, on that and and you know george washington to his credit said we need to be a country that accepts into our bosom people from everywhere who face you know did injustice he say bosom? at home? <laughs> he, oh he God, I hope did. not.
0: He, <laughs> he,
1: he actually did, um, as was you know more common in those days. But the point is, we we need to we need to accept uh, uh, you know diverse people into our own country and become. I mean, he sort of framed early on this idea of melting pot by saying we should embrace them. That's an example of active, positive leadership. Um, but right now, where do we see that? And I, th- I think, you know, one, one example is, is uh, Angela Merkel, uh, who is actively trying to make that message. Another is the Pope, who's actively trying to send that message. Another is uh, 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 Justin Trudeau, who's actively trying to send that message. Um, and, and you know, I, I think it's a, you know, it's one of those things where unless those people gain the upper hand, we are going to continue sliding down a slippery slope. We've been sliding down for uh, almost two decades now.
0: David, and- I'm just, I just don't think it's true that America has been sliding down a slope towards intolerance for two decades. I I think you're over reading the current moment. Well,
1: first of all, we've been sliding. One and down. a half. So we've been intolerant for most of our history. But but we have grown. We have had a a faction in our society that has started out in the nineteen nineties and even the nineteen eighties talking about values and american values which means white christian values and doesn't mean and 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 it means a certain role for men and a certain role for women and 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 it's just you know it, it's gotten worse and worse and we've seen attacks on globalists which means attacks on tolerance and attacks on diversity uh gain and and you know i mean donald trump is the president of the united states and he's a racist so we can't say we're not in a different place than we've ever been, can we?
3: No, I mean I, I don't think we can. But I, your point about leaders, I think, is a very interesting one. Of course, there, there is no there's no sociology of how good leaders emerge. But you mentioned Angela Merkel and Justin Trudeau and the Pope and others, but. Um, uh, the you know imagine how differently South Africa might have gone if Nelson Mandela hadn't been the leader when when um, racial apartheid was being dismantled. Imagine how when when the Af- when when the Ameri- um, when the black majority finally got enfranchised. Imagine how differently the Soviet Union might have dissolved or not dissolved had it been somebody other than Gorbachev um, uh, who'd, who'd emerged. The the the, pro- the the good news is you know leaders can emerge without sort of being anticipated at all and from very odd places. The bad news is that when you've got the wrong leader, and I agree entirely that Trump is the wrong leader, they can set a tone that has a very different sort of um, uh, multiplier effect. And and that's one of the reasons I feel, you know, a, a deeply, deep sense of foreboding about, about America today. Um, this is the wrong leader.
1: Well, and I think, you know, and this is the end of our time here, and and uh, perhaps we can continue this in the conversation later in the week. But you know, this is the issue: leaders without moral values um, are not true leaders. They are they are fomenters of uh, societal self destruction, and uh, it's happened time and time again. Uh, sooner or later, if you focus on division. You lead to conflict and 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 defeat. Um, and right now, we're in search of those leaders, and it's a role the United States has played fairly effectively from time to time. And right now, is on the sidelines. We are just not getting involved in any constructive way. That's very disturbing. Um, having said that. This has been a very illuminating discussion. I really want to thank Ed, and I want to thank Corey, and I want to thank Rosa, and I want to encourage all of you to come back later in the week for another episode of Deep State Radio. Tweet us your ideas for future episodes, and we'll send out a few more interesting developments in the next couple of weeks about our website, about our store, and about uh, some interesting things we have up our sleeve. Keep tuning in. We love you, Deep State Radio nerds. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.